Today's episode is sponsored by American Creative Consulting. If you need a fresh look for your business or side hustle, contact ACC for pricing. Specializing in high-quality, low-cost websites and design, their team of designers will be exactly what you need to succeed in 2020. Visit designedbyacc.com to get started now. Thanks for joining us this week. I just want to wish everybody a happy holiday from the team here at Behind the Pink Ribbon. I have to give a big shout out to my longtime friend, Nikina Davis, for introducing me to our guest this week. On this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Melissa Brumbelow. She is a 10-year breast cancer survivor. She had an extensive history of cancer and was recommended for genetic testing. While Melissa and her doctor thought that she had time to be monitored before cancer would strike, it came much sooner than anticipated. You don't want to miss out on Melissa's story. Take a listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Melissa. She is a 10-year breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed in April of 2009 at the age of 21, or 28, excuse me. Um, Thank you for being on the show, Melissa. It's uh, nice to have you here with us. Oh, thank you for the invite. Absolutely. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis. I'd like to hear um, a little bit about how you either found a lump or, um, you know, if maybe you were doing self-breast exams or if you had gone in for, you know, maybe you were seeing the gynecologist or, you know, how did that all come about for you? Um, I actually was diagnosed at the age of 28. I happened to be in mid-March going in for just a regular OBGYN checkup. And while I was there, uh, my OBGYN explained to me that there was a new genetic hereditary breast cancer uh, test that could be performed. And the more she explained it to me, the more it sounded like a crystal ball to cancer. In my family, we actually had on record 17 cases of cancer in the immediate family alone. Wow. And that is all part, exactly. So that is all a part of my medical history there with her office. And when she was explaining to me that at that point in time when it had just come out and and known, um, I was going to be only the second patient out of her entire practice that she actually recommended this genetic testing. And she explained to me, yeah, she explained to me at that point in time that all it was, they would draw five small, small vials of blood, send it to Salt Lake City, Utah, where Myriad Genetic Laboratories was stationed, and they would basically scan the blood for um, the five different types of genetic hereditary cancers that had become known, um, which are actually in both male and female. Right. Um, so for probably, well, at that point, let me backtrack at that point in time, when I went in for the regular exam, of course, that included a breast exam. 
Um, but in my family, because we've had so many cases of cancer, I have been having uh, full mammograms since the age of 21. Okay. And insurance paid for that because of the amount of cancer that was in my family. There was definitely a cause to have either six-month or annual checkups. Absolutely. And so prior to your diagnosis, what was, if you even know, the youngest age of the, you know, another family member that was diagnosed with cancer? I'm just kind of curious what Mm -hmm. prompted them to start it at 21? Um, Both of my grandparents or my grandmothers had been through breast cancer. One had passed away. And at that point in time, I had one that was still living. Um, We actually had cousins and second cousins as early as the early 20s that had experienced breast cancer and had um, already had double mastectomies performed. Wow. Yeah. So you had... So it was rampant in the females in my family. So you had um, grandmothers on both sides of your family. So paternal and maternal. Okay. So you went and you had the testing done. um, Mm -hmm. And then it came back that you were positive um, for a genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. The way that that actually happened, within three weeks, my OBGYN had received the results, called me back into her office and said, okay, this is what is black and white on this piece of paper. And she had actually had a consult with uh, Myriad Genetic Laboratories in Utah so that she could understand because this, at that point in time, back in from 2007 until 2009, this was still very much a, um, a taboo subject within the medical industry. So she had to make sure that she 100% understood what the actual percentages meant. And at that point in time, when results were delivered, it was percentages. So I was 87% positive for breast cancer, 44% positive for ovarian cancer by the age of 40, as what's listed on the results, based upon the mutated genes discovered in my blood, uh, in my blood test. Wow. So we had, at that point in time, we had a 10 to a 12-year window. So she was very explicit. She's like, at this point in time, now this is mid-March, she said, you do not have cancer. Your mammogram images are crystal clear. There's no haze. There's no fuzzy. There's, there's no lumps that can be detected. Your mammogram images are crystal clear. However, we now have this crystal ball. And she said, from this point forward, every six months, instead of once a year, we're going to come, we're going to bring you in and we'll do a full blood work. We will do full um, ultrasounds, not just palpitating breast exams. And she said, every six months to a year that you come into my office, you'll also begin to see your family breast oncologist. And it made me feel so good and so protected because they were going to be all over this for me. The first sign or first detection, we were going to be able to take action. We were going to be able to detect it very early. I mean, that's really intense. Yes, <laughs> Like I, I certainly have not heard a story similar to this. I mean, kudos to your doctor, really, for just... Phenomenal. Yeah, team. just like kind of 
being so aggressive with that um, because I don't know, um, like I said, very many people that have had that same experience where they were just so on top of it. I was able to call my family breast oncologist um, and because it was not an emergency and she also needed to have time to look at all of these test results, it wasn't until April 27th. It was about a month and a half or about a month after I had seen my OBGYN that I was able to get into her practice. And by that time, she had reviewed all the mammograms. She had reviewed my entire medical history. She had a, the full copy of the, um, obviously, of the genetic hereditary blood work. So when I went in to see her, at first, we were actually sitting in her private medical office, not an exam room. She was behind her desk. I was on the other side in the chairs. And so we just had a verbal conversation. She's like, I understand you don't have this, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've received all your results. We're going to be on top of this. And then she said something that I am so thankful that she did say. She said, your OBGYN feels for lumps. She said, I am a I'm a specialty oncologist. I'm a breast cancer surgeon. She said, if you will, let me conduct a breast exam because I'm going to feel for things a little bit differently. And I said, well, I mean, yeah, I've had so many exams. The modesty flew out the window, uh, you know, decades ago. I'm like, sure. So I'm already just whip off your shirt. Yeah, exactly. And she's like, no, it's okay. We can actually get you in a gown in an exam room. (laughs) You're like, why waste time? Just do it right now. I'll lay on your desk. (laughs) <laughs> right. Absolutely. Didn't, ma- didn't bother me any. So we actually did. We walked across to an exam room and um, she helped me get in a gown and this, that, and the other. And while she was actually, um, she started with my left breast. And while she had me laid back on the exam table, she is literally palpitating with her right hand. And she is holding up my mammogram image uh, there and the, through the, the light, the filtered light coming through the window. And she just stayed in one place. She stayed, after she completed the whole mound, she actually, like, narrowed in, focused on the lower left portion of my breast, almost right up against my rib cage. And she just kept pressing and pressing, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me that she has found something. Yeah. So, me being, you know, a little, very nervous at this point with all the information that had already been thrown at me. I got a little sarcastic and I said, all right, doc, you know, you push any further, you're going to pop a lung. (laughs) And she stopped and she put the image down and she looked at me and God love this woman. She had tears in her eyes and she said, babe, we do not have 10 years to wait on this. She said, it is here now and we have got to get it before it gets you. And she just scooped me up in this huge hug right there on the exam table. And I just, I literally just fell to pieces. I melted. I can, I I mean, I can only imagine. Like I, I have chills right now because. You don't expect your doctor to break down in tears, right? Well, that, I mean. So out of the blue for this to actually occur, because at that point in time, all of the doctors you know, the, the information that had been provided from Myriad Genetic Laboratories, everything pointed to me by the age of 40 in 10 to 12 years. I was not expecting that in her office when I had been told, and I could clearly see on my images 
there was nothing there only a month and a half before. So here it was April 27th and something was there large enough for her to palpitate with her fingers. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, I think that's the other part of it is, you know, I, I have the chills because one, you were not anticipating this. I mean, none of us are, are really anticipating it, but you know, typically what happens is there's a course of, of action that takes place that leads us to a breast surgeon, but we've, you know, at that point have gone through, um, you know, most people have gone through an ultrasound, you know, a, a mammogram, which you had done a biopsy, all of that stuff. And you went from a clean mammogram to a genetic test that indicated in the next, you know, X number of years, 10 years or so, then we might be having a different conversation. So let's get you set up now with a breast surgeon. So, you know, I have chills just because it, you really, truly had to be blindsided by it. But then to have that doctor who was just so kind, um, and those kind of doctors are so rare, you know, is, is really yes, kind of why they got the chills. Yeah. So, do you remember at all, like, I mean, were you by yourself? Did you have somebody with you? I mean, that's a hefty thing to hear. Well, I actually, my husband at the time was in the room with me. Um, we did not actually make it through the final um, surgeries for breast cancer um, and the reconstruction before we actually divorced. Okay. So in the middle of all this cancer stuff, you're also dealing with a divorce. Correct. That's a lot. And 28. Yes, it was. And 28. <laughs> You're 28. When all this ha was happening. I mean, that's a, that's so much to deal with. It absolutely amazed me. One of the biggest life lessons that I have ever learned is you find out very quickly uh, what your marriage is made of when it comes to a major medical crisis. Definitely. Definitely. I really was just having a conversation um, about the fact that some people can't handle or deal with some kind of medical crisis like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and At unfortunately... The end of... Go ahead. I was just going to say that unfortunately, you know, we who are dealing with a medical crisis don't have a choice. Correct. Yeah. And you were, what um, were you going to say? Uh, the final straw of that divorce in the middle of my reconstructive surgeries, um, I came home from having my third out of five surgeries and I will remember so clearly, um, I was obviously in a lot of pain, um, came home and made it into the recliner. My mother was there helping me. And as she left, um, my husband sat down in the chair next to me and looked over at me with bandages and drain tubes coming out of me and said, you know, I didn't marry a younger woman to have to take care of her. Oh, I married a younger woman so she could take care of me. Oh my gosh. And I don't know what you're going to do about all those scars. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And I looked at that man and I said, done. Yeah. Good for you. I mean, really good for you. Because somebody else that might be 
that young and dealing with that kind of situation, that medical crisis may not have had the strength to say, I'm done. Right. They, you know, somebody else may have begged and pleaded for that person to stay. And what an awful thing to do as a human being. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. If it were not for all the different doctors and specialists that I had to help me stay strong, I, I do not think that I could have done this alone. Absolutely. And it actually broke my heart. The more I thought about that throughout each phase of reconstruction, the more my heart went out to what I would have um, called the guinea pigs of the decades past. Right. Because if it were not for all of these other men and women mm-hmm. going through these situations, mine would not have been as seamless as it actually was. Right. Absolutely. 110 The decades of discovery leading up to this for my present time of going through something like that, just that was never lost on me for a single second. Right. And also thinking about, you know, now here you are 10 years out and, you know, things and technology have changed and I know they're always improving. And so we are the people that the people now are looking back to and saying, thank you for also being, you know, quote unquote, guinea pigs. I mean, the BRCA testing and all of that stuff, but just in general, you know, the things that we may have experienced, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. Are impacting the people today. And I have actually uh, received phone calls from other women that have gone through the BRAC analysis, genetic hereditary testing, um, within a year of my initial double mastectomy. Um, the Myriad Genetic Laboratories, they had a monopoly. There was a company out of Canada that was about one year behind them and their own discoveries and Inventions are not the term to use, but the medical technology and discovery. Um, But the one in the U.S. at that point in time, there was only one, and it was Myriad. And the way that they performed um, their, or excuse me, the way that they wrote their diagnosis based upon the genetic hereditary testing, the way that they sent the results changed after one year. Um, There were a lot of lawsuits. Um, A lot of women were receiving these percentages, these actual numbers in black and white on a piece of paper. And we were all making life-altering decisions based upon those numbers. Whereas about a year after I had received mine and I'm into the reconstruction phases at that point, Um, Myriad changed the way that they delivered their results. Instead of, for example, 87% positive for breast cancer, 44% positive for ovarian cancer by the age of 40, they changed it so that it was either significant or not significant. Hmm. They were no longer freely putting the actual percentages or numbers based upon an individual's Uh, mutated genes, those markers that they were looking for on the chromosomes. 
Right. I would have to go back and I'm going to have to go back and look at mine because when you talked about receiving a percentage, so I was diagnosed in 2007, so two years before you, and had the BRCA testing at that point in time. And my, I don't recall receiving any kind of percentage. So I'm kind of curious to go back and look and see what they were reporting at that point in time. And if there is a percentage in there, because I don't, I don't recall that being a part of my report. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I'll have to look and let you know. So you're getting phone calls from all of these women. Yes, I was. And I was thrilled at that because it's just like what we just said. We were becoming the guinea pigs for the next round or the next generation, so to speak. Right. Um, I was receiving phone calls anywhere from one a week. Sometimes it was middle of the night. Um, A newly diagnosed patient, obviously, none of us could sleep. Our minds could not shut off. You know, it's, it's, it's beyond overwhelming. It's all consuming. Yes. When you get that big C, that cancer diagnosis. And there were even family friends that would call in the middle of the night just squalling, didn't even know what to ask, did not know what to think, what to say. And I would just start sharing with them my story, not to negate theirs, but to say, this is my oncology team. This is my breast reconstruction surgeon. This is my OBGYN. And my biggest worry for other patients was, if your team does not sound exactly like mine, then run from them. Go and get that second opinion. Come to my team. Come to my doctors. These people are literally saving my life. So were these people that had also had the genetic mutation testing and were found? Some did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some did and some did not. Some were receiving um, results from... Um, just regular blood work. Maybe they had gone into an OBGYN. Maybe they had actually found a lump and immediately went to a um, an oncology group. And white blood cells, red blood cell counts, at one point in time over the previous weeks going on months, they had received a result and were then calling me to see you know, was it similar to mine? Let's start to compare. Let's gather some thoughts. Let's just talk about it so that we can actually wrap our head around it. So how did they know to connect with you? Were you like a part of a peer mentorship program at your hospital or medical facility? Or were you like, was it online? Like, how did they, how did they, how were they able to find you? How did they know to call you? There were multiple, um, there were actually multiple ways uh, in my family word spread like wildfire. So as soon as I had received mine and we start making these plans, um, I was very open and honest with all of my family immediately told them this is what's going on. And of course, you know, family and friends talk, right? I mean, it just spreads throughout town. Like, Oh, this is, this is not normal. This is not your grandma going and finding breast cancer or a lump, right? I mean, this is a 28-year-old young woman, and she's going in for a double mastectomy very quickly. Right. And um, 
so it was word of mouth. Um, it was also, I did actually seek out, um, especially with having both of my grandmothers that had gone through breast cancer. One had passed at that point in time. One was still living. But the way that mine occurred was different from anything that we had heard in our family up until that point in time. And the one grandmother that was living um, had actually found a lump. She had a lumpectomy and then went through chemo and radiation. And my situation was different. And I was not going to have to go through that. Or at least we were hoping that I would not. We were hoping that it was so early that a double mastectomy would cover all the bases as long as nothing had um, spread into sentinel lymph nodes. Right. And um, I did consult with all of my medical team and told them, number one, that I needed to speak with someone that had gone through this because as crazy as it sounded, I didn't have anyone to sit down with me and give me the advice to tell me what you know, what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like, where was my mentor? Right. Yeah. Who's going to help me? It happened right. And it happened so fast and I didn't have that. I reached out to, I did find, um, um, county or local, uh, breast cancer groups, support groups. Um, some were with women, um, newly diagnosed in the reconstruct or in the um, surgical process, I should just say, um, those that had uh, become survivors throughout the years, but none of them, when I reached out to them and went to the support group meetings, they didn't really know what to say because theirs was a little different than what I was about to go through. So I I realized very quickly and in under two and a half months from the time that the breast oncologist actually found lumps to the time that I went in for my double mastectomy in only that two and a half month time, I realized this is not right. And I started to journal or write. um, And at first what I thought I was writing was just going to be good therapy for me. I'm a writer. I, I love to write, whether it be, you know, personal journals, diary, when I was little, you know, but I also started using throughout that first year, I started using my own medical progress photos that were taken at my reconstructive surgeon's office and putting those in so that when other women came to me with this situation, I was like, oh, let me be able to calm some of your fears. Let me share with you. I will literally show you the pictures this is what it's going to look like. This is what it felt like for me. Wow. So that they were not so totally unprepared to go into life-altering medical surgeries. Right. Well, and I would imagine, too, for me, at least I found that when I wanted somebody to talk to, there wasn't anyone that was my age. And you know, I was, I was 31, so I was pretty close to your age. Um, but there wasn't anyone that was even close to my age. And the impact between, you know, what happens to a person in, you know, their 20s, 30s, even kind of their early 40s is very different compared to, you know, somebody that might have been diagnosed when they were 
you know, 50s, 60s, or even 70s. And I, I would suspect that, you know, when you went to the support groups that you maybe found that same thing where the, the women there might have been much older than you. Was that the case? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. It was. And they were shocked. Um, especially, you know, it amazes me how quickly that medical technology improves just in the 10 plus years since I was 100% done with my last reconstructive surgery. Um, the technology has continued to improve, continued to change. So when I'm sitting there talking with the late or I'd say mid 50s to mid 70 year old breast cancer patients, they were shell shocked. Yeah, it's that different. All of this was detected because I just happened to agree to take a five vial uh, blood test. Right. I can only imagine that they were probably like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds, it, at that point in time, it sounded futuristic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I've, I have met people that have been positive. You know, they've been tested for the, the mutation and they've come out positive for having the mutation and then they've opted to do something. I haven't met anyone that has been, you know, has been identified as having a genetic mutation and then within that very short period of time also being told oh yeah you know you don't have 10 years it is here now correct yeah so I I will never forget laying on that exam table as soon as we finished you know the the rush of tears um she wheeled that ultrasound machine in fired it up uh, went straight to the bottom left side of my left breast, and sure enough, and and I'm no medical professional, but even I could see the lump that was there on the ultrasound, and she wound up spotting um, three additional lumps in my left breast that were smaller, and one in my right. So I literally went from mid March of having nothing on my crystal clear mammogram images. And in only a month and a half, I had five tumors between my two breasts. Wow. It was that aggressive. It was, it was growing at a very alarming rate. Yeah. I mean, that is a very, very short period of time to end up to have nothing. And then all of a sudden have five tumors. Mm Mm-hmm. And you shared with me that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but eventually you had 10? I did. Um, So April 27th was the date that I was in the family breast oncologist office, and she found the four tumors in my left breast and one on the right. And it took a month and a half. It It was June 15th by the time that I was able to get in for the actual double mastectomy. And at the double mastectomy, they discovered that from April 27th to June 15th, that next month and a half, it had gone from four in my left and one in my right to um, six in my left and four in my right. So my tumors literally, the amount had doubled. I went from, um, I went from five to 10 tumors in only another month and a half. 
That's crazy. And the reality- The largest. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, and the reality is, is that you would not have found that. I would have had no clue until it was literally too late because we did not know. Had I not have, had my OBGYN not had suggested the BRAC analysis testing in mid-March, I would have never realized that there were 10 tumors. Right. Exactly. My, she literally saved my life by suggesting the testing. Oh my gosh. And I can't, I imagine the connection that you have with her and the, she is amazing. <laughs> I can only, I mean, really like just the love and the appreciation, the gratitude that you must have for her. Um, I love her all to pieces. Yeah. I mean, really, because truly she, thankfully she was a pioneer at that point in time. Thankfully, Very she was so. open, yeah, to suggesting that you have that testing because mm -hmm. I know from experience and just in talking to other people that despite having a significant history of cancer, whether it's breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, whatever it might be, there are some doctors that are still very hesitant to send people off to be assessed. And so, you know, really she genuinely at that point in time was so on the cutting edge of what was available and, and thankfully, I mean, really thankfully for you, um, since then, um, I know that there have been more patients of hers um, that discovered their own genetic mutations. And when you called her an, a pioneer, you are 100% correct. She even went so far as to look into um, insurance because at that point in time, some of the insurance companies were not willing to cover the BRAC analysis testing. Correct. They, and if they weren't willing to cover that, then they were not going to be willing to cover um, major medical surgeries or procedures for these women and men that had discovered their genetic hereditary mutations, whereas it became a federal law passed uh, rather quickly right. that if these results that were delivered meant that you needed to make a major medical life-altering decision, insurance could no longer deny that coverage. Right. Yeah. And that's the reality of it too, is that mm -hmm. I have many, many friends who, you know, over in support groups or wherever I've met them, they have shared with me that, you know, they have an extensive history of, of cancer in their family, but yet they were never tested for the genetic mutations. And to then tell people, sorry, but we're not going to cover you for, you know, a mastectomy or whatever it is that you choose um, because of this BRCA mutation. Sorry, you know, we're just going to kind of wait and see. No, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, sorry. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love your story and I love well, it because... You have taken, I mean, yours is, is extremely unique and, and 
you know, I feel like we all have our own stories. You know, we all have the same, same diagnosis, but we all have different stories that sit behind that diagnosis. And you have taken this thing that happened to you and you really have put yourself into a position of helping other people, you know, just being so willing to talk to them and be a mentor to them. Um, but I also know that you have published a book as a writer. <laughs> um, I did. Yeah. And so please share what the, the name of your book is um, and where people can find it. The name of the book is called Perky Mutant. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and that actually came, that name came to be uh, during the reconstruction processes. Um, the book is all about the step-by-step processes of reconstruction. It's the diagnosis, the initial latissimus dorsi bilateral mastectomy, the, the double mastectomy that occurred with with my situation. And then it launches immediately into all of the reconstruction processes or surgeries. And I actually included my medical progress photos from neck to navel so that other people, other women going through this can literally see this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, that's amazing. Those were the two biggest questions what is it going to feel like and what is it going to look like? Yeah. And to put yourself out there and be able absolutely willing and vulnerable and open um, certainly will impact other people. It is all about sharing the lessons learned. Absolutely. Whether it be tips and tricks you learn along the way to understanding the actual medical lingo. I mean, Every single bit of this was a discovery process. Yes, it is. (laughs) And you find out that you end up knowing way more medical technical terms than you ever wanted to know in your life, how to read pathology (laughs) reports. (laughs) Um, Yeah, all of those things. And it really truly is probably one of the biggest life lessons in so many different ways. Um, for me at least. And it sounds like you've kind of had that same experience. I think the biggest life lesson I learned, and I don't want to get sappy when I say this, but if it your, serves your you, scars, do it. Yeah. Scars give character. And I would not trade a single lesson learned during those two years for a single scar on my body. Absolutely. I will proudly bear every scar because of those life lessons learned. Yes. Yeah. That's powerful. And that's great. And I know that somebody's going to be listening to this and maybe they're in the middle of their reconstructive process and they're thinking about the scars that they're going to have once they're through this. And to hear that from somebody that's been through it I think will help that person or persons. I certainly hope so. Absolutely. For sure. You never know who is going to be inspired by or their life might be changed by you sharing your story. So with that, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, sharing your story, being so open and willing um, to have this conversation. Um, So thank you. 
thank you. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.